John chapter 5. This morning we'll look at verses 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 16. And the Word of God reads as follows. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who has been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting him, persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Pray with me as we begin this time together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that even as we turn to it now, we would learn from it and be instructed by it so that we too might believe upon the Lord Jesus and have life. I thank you for those here who know you in truth. May this time serve to edify their soul and help them to love Christ more. I pray for those here who might not know you already, that even by means of this time we spend together now, that they would know you in truth, and that through that they would be granted life, and that life in your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Friends, when we began the book of John, you would remember that in John 20, verse 31, we are given uh, the purpose for why John writes this book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is very straightforward with what his intention is as he writes out this letter. And in chapter 5, we begin to make a slight turn. Uh, We turn a, a corner in terms of the direction that John is going in this book. To this point, it's been John's purpose to show you time and time again that Jesus is God. Jesus truly is God. He came down from heaven. He is of God. He was with God. He is the eternal word. 
And so far, you've seen it said to you. You've had that truth declared to you by means of many different testimonies. There is the testimony of John who wrote this letter, a disciple of Jesus. His opening prologue in John chapter 1 is a, a beautiful and almost poetic way of putting into words the reality of who this Jesus is. He's more than just a man. He is the eternal word. He is God. He is word made flesh. He is grace and truth. He is life. He is light. And he has come to save his people. We know this as well because we have the testimony of John the Baptist. There is John, the writer of this book, and there is also within this book someone else named John. That's John the Baptist. And John, his ministry is also meant to push you towards believing in Jesus as the Son of God and to have life in his name. You remember, John declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You would remember that John also declared, He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist, his testimony is one of recognizing exactly who he is in light of who Christ is. Jesus is the priority. Jesus is preeminent. And so John the Baptist declares to us to believe upon him who can take away our sins, who can cleanse us and purify us, one able to forgive us and give us new life. You've also seen to this point the testimony of Jesus' own works. You've seen Jesus do things that no other person can do. You've seen Jesus uh, commit certain works that only can be done by someone who is the Son of God, only by someone who comes to us from heaven. In, in Cana, Jesus takes jars of water and turns them into wine. It's not something you and I can do. It's not something you've ever seen done instantaneously like this. And it brings joy to this entire town. In John chapter 2, you also see Jesus enter into the temple. And there, people are worshiping the way they know how, misguided even at, if so. And here Jesus turns over the tables and rids the temple of people who are doing things for God, but not truly to the honor of God. And he purges this temple. He cleanses it. Something else that no one would commit to doing because everyone was so afraid of the religious leaders in Israel. But Jesus does it, proving his perfection, his regard for God, his regard for holiness, his regard for worship, we also see Jesus enter into the town of Samaria in John chapter 4. And here, though he doesn't have to necessarily, in terms of the way travel worked, go through Samaria, he does because he has a, an appointment. He has a mission to meet with this woman at the well. And there he exposes to this woman that he knows her far better than she might ever imagine. She, he knows her past he knows her sins. He knows her struggles. He knows her pain. And through this, she comes to an understanding, this must be the one we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. 
And so through this, this testimony of his knowledge and his intellect and his divinity, he declares to this woman exactly who he is. He is the Christ. And from this, this woman goes into town and the town comes back to him because they recognize there's something different about him. And not only so, the end of chapter 4 We see this official, this one who presumably works for uh, Herod. He comes to Jesus with a great need. His son is dying. His son is bedridden and at the point of death. There is no one who has been able to help him. There is no one who has been able to heal him. And I'm sure he's heard of Jesus and so he goes to him. And Jesus simply saying, your son will live, the boy is made well again. The son is made to recover instantaneously. At the same time that Jesus says, his son will live, his son is better. And the beauty of this story, if you would remember, verse 53 of chapter 4. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed, and all his household. Jesus heals this son, but what's more is he allows and brings forth the faith in this family that they could never have apart from him. There's the testimony of Jesus' works. Finally, there's the testimony of Jesus' words. We see in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus makes it clear. If anyone is to have any hope of eternal life, they must be born again. They must be born again, and this is a work of the Spirit. And this is a work that the Spirit will do by means of what Jesus does for his people. John three fourteen and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Through Jesus' own words, we have the testimony of exactly who He is. He is God made flesh. He is the holy made to be like us so that we too might be granted the righteousness of God by his redemption for us. He would die on a cross for us. He would grant us life in his name. What's more, we have him clearly telling us who he is in John 4, 25. As he speaks to this woman at the well, She says, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus also testifies by means of his own words to exactly who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. John says it, John the Baptist says it, Jesus' works say it, Jesus' own words say it. Everything through chapter 4 has declared exactly who Jesus is, and this not just so that you might have good information about him, this so that you would believe in him, that you would surrender your life to him, 
that when you come in contact with who Jesus is, you would recognize he is unlike you, though he became like you. That this one is truly the Son of God who came as a ransom for many. This is the one who came to seek and save the lost. Now, we turn to chapter 5, and there's something interesting that John will do here. The corner we're going to turn, though we've just seen a family come to faith because of Jesus' mighty works and his glorious splendor, we're now turning a corner, and Jesus will again perform a sign. He, he will again perform a healing. He, he will make someone well, someone who's been ill and invalid for 38 years. Someone unable to move or walk, someone unable to help himself for almost 40 years will be made well. And yet this time the response will be different. And that's the purpose that I think John has for us this morning by means of this text. It is to demonstrate to us just how lost we are apart from Christ. I think it's to demonstrate to us just how deep in sin and depravity humanity truly is. That even though there are all these things that point to Jesus being the Son of God who saves, there will still be those who reject Him. Jesus will heal this man at the pool of Bethesda. But it doesn't seem that this man comes to grips with exactly what's happened here. In fact, what this will incite is the beginning of a persecution in Jesus' ministry. This moment here will begin the outset of the Pharisees coming after Jesus and plotting to murder him. Now that action is set into motion. The hatred from his own people, the hatred from those who say they're closest to God towards Jesus, it will be enacted now and it's by means of him showing compassion towards a lowly sinner and an invalid like this man. Why? I think it's because though we see many signs about Jesus being Lord, that's not necessarily what many of us want from him. Jesus might be God, and Jesus might prove to us that he's God. His works might prove it. His words might prove it. The testimony of those who walked with him might prove it. But Jesus being Lord isn't exactly what we desire from Jesus. Some of us in this room, or some of you, reject Jesus because, like you'll see in a minute here, Religion is more important to you than righteousness. Some of you will continuously reject Jesus because you're going to care so much more about religion than righteousness. Here's what I mean by that. Though Jesus offers to forgive your sins and to help you to walk in righteousness, you are much more comfortable having control over your own life. You would rather try as much as you can to make God happy. You're doing a good job already of keeping your parents off your back. You're doing a good job already of making your church think that you're a Christian. You're doing a good job already of making your friends think you're a good person. You're already doing a great job of making everyone around you think you're awesome. So why would you need Jesus? Some of you will reject him because you think you're good enough. 
And nothing could be further from the truth. The issue that we'll see here soon with the Pharisees is exactly that. They have a plan to honor God. And though Jesus is the righteous one, they want nothing to do with him. They want all the glory. They want all the credit for all the good things they do, not recognizing that not an ounce of it matters to God. Because God has said, if you are to obey me, you are to believe in my son. Some of you will reject Jesus time and time again because you rather have control of your righteousness than be granted the gift of righteousness that's offered in Jesus. Others of you will reject Jesus' offer for different reasons. Some of you will reject the offer that Christ gives of eternal life and salvation. You won't buy into his lordship. And the reason will be because you want what you want, not what Jesus wants. You want what you think Jesus should give you, not what Jesus offers to give you. So you want Jesus to help your family member to get better from that illness. That would be great. You want Jesus to help your family out of financial trouble. That would be great. You want Jesus to fix some of your relationships at school, some of your friendships that are broken. You want Jesus to fix your relationship at home. You want Jesus to do a lot of things for you, but you don't want Jesus to do what Jesus came for. You don't want to take responsibility for your sin. You don't want to take responsibility for how woefully short you're falling of God's glory. You don't want a Jesus who saves. You just want a Jesus who fixes. You don't want a Jesus who tells you things the way they are and a Jesus who says you must submit to him. You want a Jesus who can roll along for when you need him and when you don't, you can do away with him. You want your kind of Jesus, not the one that God has given You want a Jesus that's a puppet or a genie, but you don't want a Jesus who's the Son of God. Some of you will reject Jesus because the cost of following Jesus is too high. Some of you will reject Jesus because to follow him will cost you too much. Maybe following Jesus will cause problems for you at home. Maybe your family is not a believing family, that you don't come from a Christian background. And so if you become a Christian, it'll put you at odds with your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, your tios and your tias. That's uncles and aunts for my less cultured friends. Him. Uh, Maybe uh, the cost of following Jesus is not simply uh, at home, but it's with your friends. It's your reputation. It's your popularity. Maybe if I follow Jesus, people won't follow me. Maybe if I give in to following Jesus, people won't want to do anything with me anymore. Uh, People attract to me. I make people laugh a lot. I'm really in with everything that's going on around me. If I start following Jesus, that's not cool enough to keep people around. And so many of you will dismiss Jesus because your reputation is on the line and your name far outweighs Jesus' name in this situation. Some of you won't want to follow Jesus because you think it'll put you at odds with society. Your good standing is at stake. Your honor in society is at stake. Jesus is the laughing stock of the world. Why would I add that to my resume? 
Some of you will reject Jesus because the cost of following him is too high. One more for you. Some of you will reject following Jesus because hearing the message of Jesus, you simply don't want it. You can agree with it time and time again. You can hear it over and over and over. And you have counted the cost. You're not willing to pay it. It isn't that you're worried about what your family would say or what your reputation would be or if you'd have good standing in society. You're just simply saying, I know better, I know best, and Jesus isn't it. I can see all of it. I understand it. I know it. It's fine. I just don't want it. These are all poor reasons to reject the Son of God, and they come with grave consequences. Jesus, though he heals this man, will make that very clear to him. And though the Pharisees will come after Jesus in this instant because of his gracious and compassionate work towards this man, we recognize that the only hope that any sinner has from eternal destruction is an eternal God who saves us unto eternal life. This is written as well, so that when you see this passage, this narrative, play itself out, you too might look to Jesus and believe and have life in him. That you would count all these costs of rejecting Jesus and recognize they pale in comparison to the life he offers. And they pale in comparison to what is owed to those who reject him. I want you to see that by means of this passage today. Number one, let's look at it this way. Jesus shows up to heal. Jesus shows up to heal. There's a feast of the Jews that's happening in Jerusalem. It's kind of the cycle of this book. Jesus will continue to make his way from Jerusalem to Galilee to Jerusalem to Galilee And he'll keep working back and forth. We don't know exactly what feast this is, but Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. And I'll tell you what, every time we see that there's a feast where Jesus has to show up, you have to recognize Jesus is committing himself to doing the things that God has required. Though Jesus is God, Jesus follows the law, and he follows the scriptures, and he obeys God's commands for the ways that his people should worship. And so Jesus goes to this feast in obedience of what God has required, and there he is in Jerusalem, but also Jesus tends to have his own agenda in mind, and he typically does. So Jesus is at this feast of the Jews, but there in Jerusalem, verse 2, there is a sheep gate by a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Those would be uh, it's kind of porticos. They like serve to shade the area that they cover. And this would be necessary in such a hot place like Jerusalem. And so they, they cover these pools and these pools are meant uh, to be there for people like we see in verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, why would they congregate there? Why would anyone allow them to congregate there? There's many different thoughts as to why that would be. One is that this ain't the best of pools. In fact, we would know that because it's at the, it's at the sheep gate. You're wondering, what's the sheep gate? 
Any wild guesses as to what the sheep gate is? It's a gate for sheep. You did a good job. You did a really, really good job. It's the gate by which they would bring in the sheep into town, and especially for their sacrificial system. As a matter of fact, it's believed that these sheep would jump into these pools to be cleansed off. So these aren't great pools. This isn't great water. And so it's no surprise to us that this is where the people have pushed the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed to wait for something to happen in this water and to hang around this water expecting healing. Why would that be the case? Well, you notice that in your Bible, you have verse 3, and maybe if you have a Bible like mine, then you have verse 5. And now some of you are noticing it for the first time, and the Bible is still inerrant. Here's the reason why. Verse 4, which maybe is in the note of your Bible, was added much later. The original manuscripts don't include what is said in verse 4. And verse 4, if you have it in your Bible, would read as, as follows. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That's not in the original manuscripts of your Bible. That's why it wasn't included. However, it does seem to communicate something to us of the superstition of this water. Not only was it where sheep might have been cleaned off, apparently there was something happening in this pool. It's believed that maybe this pool was filled up with spring water, and so there was some activity that sometimes occurred in the water, and the people thought, oh, it's, it's an angel of the Lord who's stirring up the water so that anyone that jumps in will be healed. And so this group of people, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, hung out by these waters, hoping for that to happen and hoping to be the first to go in, for if they were, they would come out healed. Now, we meet a very sad, sad man. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. John doesn't give us a description of what's going on with this man. He doesn't tell us exactly what his problem is or his disease or his issue. He's been there 38 years. It's as long as Israel was in the wilderness. This guy has been sitting by a pool, longing for the day that he could be the first to jump in and receive healing. He is holding on to hope all these years. And just imagine his life story. 38 years he's been there. No family. No friends. No invitation to go be with someone at their home and have dinner with them. No one to come by and to comfort him and to be with him. No one to help him. No one to turn to. No one to call upon. This man has lived 38 years in isolation in hopes of making it to this pool in Bethesda that would heal him. What a sad and lonely situation. And friends, this is a picture to us. It isn't intended to be something really weird or mystical. However, it is a sign to us. It is something that points to us the extent of just how far gone we are from God and how low that can set us. 
that because of sin, man is totally depraved. Man is completely wretched. And this man's physical state communicates something to us about where all of us are. His inability to help himself should remind you of your spiritual state as well. His inability to do anything to comfort himself or heal himself or do anything to help the situation as a reminder of what sin does to the human. It puts him in a position of grave need. If only someone would come along to help. Good news for this man, Jesus is in town. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, again, you can archive that into the list of questions Jesus has that are savage, or you can understand what's going on here. I know it seems kind of savage. 38 years, the guy's sitting there, can't move, and Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He's not being mean. He's not trying to be sarcastic. Jesus is being compassionate. When was the last time you think anyone even dared to ask this man that question? 38 years, not only has he given up, everyone's given up. No one cares about him. No one loves him. No one's there to help him. And in walks in this stranger and his question is, do you want to be healed? It isn't a mockery of his situation. In fact, I believe it's asked in a way to inspire this man to expect something to happen. It's not just, do you want to be healed? But I think in the background, it's, I can do something about it. A sick man answers him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. This has been a situation for 38 years. There's no one to take him to the pool, and he can't get there himself. Someone always beats him to the water. Jesus says, get up, take your bed, and walk. Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. It's written intentionally in this sense. The reason that it seems like you're reading the same verse back to back is to show you that when Jesus said this man would be healed, it happened right away authenticating his kind of healing. When Jesus healed, it wasn't like the people that probably went into the pool and came back out. It's believed that maybe there was some therapeutic element to this pool, but if you got into this pool, there wasn't much happening. And if there was some improvement, it wasn't lasting. What Jesus does is he says, get up, take your bed and walk. And what this man hasn't been able to do for 38 years, he does in an instant. It is the power of Jesus on display. Now, you would think, end of story, awesome story, everyone can go home, we're all happy, we all rejoice, but the story continues with these words, now that day was the Sabbath. Now that day was the Sabbath. Here we turn to point number two. The Jews show up to accuse the Jews show up to accuse. 
Now that day was the Sabbath. If you understand uh, Judaism at all, you would know that the Sabbath is a day initiated for rest. And for this, you can turn with me, uh, go back to Exodus. Go back to the book of Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31, verses 12 to 17. This also initiated in the Ten Commandments, as you know. Keep the Sabbath day holy. He goes on in Exodus 31, verse 12. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Now, you can see there's two things clearly stated here. One, there's obviously a Sabbath. There's obviously a day where you're supposed to rest. No work, there's rest, that's it. It's also obvious the Sabbath is taken quite seriously. Not to honor the Sabbath is an offense punishable by death. So, Jesus heals a man, tells him to get up and to walk. He goes with his stuff and you're wondering, how is he picking up his bed? It's not a mattress like you have, you know, a Cali King. It's, a, it's like a sleeping bag. All of you can carry a sleeping bag, right? Some of you, some of you got to get back in the gym if you can't. But it's, it's a sleeping bag, and he picks it up and he walks. Now, this day was the Sabbath, and it's been instituted in the Sabbath. There would be no work on this day. But you have to understand before we get into it, the kind of work that God has commanded to be to rest is that kind of work that is uh, we call labor. It's kind of like what you do when you're an employee. It's that kind of work. Uh, The Pharisees and the Jews have taken it to the next level. They've taken anything that looks like effort to be work. And so anything that requires effort, like picking this up right now, is outlawed on the Sabbath. There's actually some that there's some writings in the Jewish tradition that say um, on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to commit to doing any repair work in your house. And you're thinking, that's good. I would actually take that. I don't want to do repair work at my house. However, one of the reasons you're not allowed to do repair work at your house is because, get ready for this, if your teeth were to fall out, you wouldn't be allowed to put them back in. Because that's work. At which point you're asking, why are your teeth falling out? And at which point I'm asking, how do we put them back in? But the point is made known, right? What, what's happened to the Sabbath rule is that it's been taken above and beyond what God designed. God designed it to be rest. God designed it, as Jeremiah 17 says for us, not to be a burden. That's the design of God for the Sabbath. It is to resemble what God did when he created the world. Six days he labored in making everything, and he spoke, and things were set into motion, and on the seventh he rested. This is what the Sabbath is to be. So note, 
There are no rules against picking up your bed and walking unless you're a Pharisee, unless you're a leader in Israel. And that's what the Jews signify here. And they show up to accuse. Verse 10, the Jews said to this man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. I mean, it's the most Pharisee thing you can do. This guy that has been sitting by a pool for 38 years, unable to move, you see him standing in front of you with his bed, a bed that he's had for 38 years. You see that he's completely healed. And your question is, what are you doing walking around? It's the Sabbath. I mean, they completely miss the point. Instead of asking Who healed you? Instead of looking towards how is it possible that this man has been made well, they simply say, why are you breaking the rules? It shows exactly what religion can do to people. Religion makes it so that people who say they love God lack compassion on others. And if you read 1 John over camp, Or if you take a moment to read 1 John, one of the most precious things that we read in it is that all those who say they love God love their brother. And that if you say you don't love your brother, you can't tell God that you love him. The Pharisees were a walking contradiction on that. They said they loved God a lot. In fact, they loved him so much that when a guy who hadn't walked in 38 years showed up at the temple, they said you shouldn't be doing that. They showed no love for him, no compassion toward him, no grace toward him. All they cared about was the law, their law. What they had no regard for was love, God's love. This man shows up and all they can do is accuse him. And he answers, the man who healed me, that, that man said to me, take your bed and walk. Now, this is interesting. Before you begin to feel bad for the guy at the pool who's been accused, uh, something of note here is it seems like this guy picks his side. Instead of of noting the graciousness of the person that healed him, he too kind of becomes an accuser. The man who healed me, that guy, that man, he said, take up your bed and walk. I'm just doing what he said. That's what I was told to do. So they ask him, who's the man who said to take up your bed and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea because Jesus, once he had done this, had withdrawn himself. Jesus doesn't love getting accolade in crowded places, just so you know. He is a truly humble servant. So Jesus removed himself from the situation. And this man doesn't truly know who Jesus is. And so verse 14, afterward, Jesus finds him in the temple. He finds the man he heals and he says to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Fascinating. Number one, it communicates something to us about this man's illness. Seemingly, he lived these 38 years as a consequence for his sin. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Just because you sin doesn't mean you're going to spend 38 years sitting by a pool hoping to get better. But that's what happened to this man. And now Jesus takes it a step further. 
He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And I don't think it's rocket science to understand what Jesus is saying here. Do you know what's far worse than spending 38 years by a pool hoping to get better? Spending eternity under the fury and wrath of God's punishment upon you as a sinner. That is Jesus' statement to this man. You've been made well physically, but unless you turn from your sin, unless you give up on yourself, unless you stop trying to please God on your own, unless you give up on the sin that has put you in this place to begin with, There are things far worse than being unable to use your body for your lifetime. Far worse would be that you stand under the judgment of God for all eternity. Friends, some of you, you won't take God seriously now. But nothing will be more real or serious than the punishment of God's holiness upon you as a sinner for eternity. What Jesus declares to this man is a message to all of us that where there is love for sin, there is assurance of punishment. That if we want to live with God, we must love Him, accept His grace, and know that His grace saves us and then sanctifies us to love sin no more. This man has been told what he needs to do, not simply to be physically better, but to be right with God. He needs to recognize the grace that came to him wasn't simply for healing. It was a savior. And that savior has told him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What's his response? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Friends, I think this is a great tragedy in this passage. I don't think this man got it. I don't think he understood the message. I don't think he understood who was before him. Where people are saved, we often see it. They're grateful and they give gratitude. The woman who had dealt with bleeding for years and years and is finally healed, she kneels before the Lord and worships and is humbled by his grace in her life. The woman at the well who is told everything she's ever done, she goes into town and she tells everyone about Jesus. The man whose son is made well just before this passage, his whole household believes and is saved. We are told no such thing about this man. What we're told is, as soon as he finds out who Jesus is, he goes and he turns them in to the Jews. He goes on his ways and he tells the Jews, that's who it is. That's the guy who told me to walk. Friends, this is to us a portrait of what many can be like even when they know who Jesus is. Jesus offers to save. Jesus offers his grace. Jesus offers his forgiveness. Jesus even does things for you in your life to make your life better, and all you do is turn him away. Friends, this is a sad sign to us 
It's the fourth in this book. A sign of Jesus' power and his divinity, but also a reminder to us of just how lost humanity is. That Jesus can do everything to make this guy's life better again. And yet this man can turn around and have little regard for Jesus. And in fact, all he does is he turns him into the Jews and the Jews are hell-bent on getting this man killed. They begin to persecute him because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. Friends, I hope that through this message, you come to terms with the reality that with Christ there are but two options. It is to believe or to reject him. And many will reject Jesus because they don't understand what he truly is. They like when Jesus does nice things for them, but they don't like that Jesus is truthful. They don't like that Jesus talks about sin. They don't like that Jesus talks about life and death. But I'm sorry, friends, this is the only Jesus we have. And this is the only Jesus that saves. If you have spent your days rejecting him, I pray that you would turn to him. And like this man, you would then hear these words and unlike him, you would heed them. That you would sin no more, recognizing that believing in him, you have new life. And friends, if you're here and you believe in Jesus and you love him and you know him, I pray that this morning, this would be a reminder to you of what you've been saved from, but also the reality that you have a responsibility to tell a broken and dying and diseased and lost world of the grace that is only offered and found in Christ. For there is salvation in, under no other name but the name of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your truth and thank you for your word. I pray that as we go from here, you would bless us to recognize the glory of Christ as a Savior. Thank you that Jesus shows up to express his kindness and his grace toward us even when we are not seeking him. And thank you that all the more your righteousness is granted to those who believe in you. I pray that anyone here who has not been saved, that they would give in to the gospel of Christ, that they would stop rejecting and turning away what they know to be true, that they would watch as God not only forgives, but also enables new life. Help us all to trust in Christ because he alone is trustworthy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.